This is a podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude project at Queen Mary, University of London. I'm Hetta Howes. In the last episode, we explored the cell as a place of solitude. And in making that, I was lucky enough to be part of a conversation with the philosopher Lisa Gunther and the writer and former Iranian political prisoner Shoka Fasaki. We couldn't include all of it in the last episode, but it was extraordinary, and so we wanted you to hear it in full. Lisa, you've used a phrase that really has struck me when I've read it to describe the experience of solitary confinement, which is the phrase living death. And I think you've said that prisoners describe solitary confinement that way. I wanted to ask you a bit more about this term, where it comes from, and why it's an important one for the research and work that you've been doing. Sure. So this is a term that I came across in testimonies from prisoners in solitary confinement in the US starting in the 19th century. So some prisoners used that exact phrase, living death, to describe the feeling of being enclosed, almost buried alive in a windowless stone box. And in some of these early penitentiary cells, the only light that came into this stone cell was from the top, from a from a small window called a, a god's eye, sort of like a skylight. And so people literally felt like they were interned in a grave and that they were consigned to death, but still somehow kept living. Other prisoners have described this experience as living in a black hole or feeling like the world has ended, but somehow you are still surviving or feeling just profoundly disconnected from the world so that somehow your biological life continues, but you're no longer connected to ongoing lives of others. It's really interesting for me because this is going to sound like a complete aside. Um, I promise it's not. I work on medieval anchoresses and anchorites, so religious recluses Mm. in the Middle Ages. And um, that state is described as a living death. The idea being that um, sort of women or men would voluntarily put themselves into a small cell and the death rites would be read over them and then they would sort of... Wow. be cut off from the rest of the world forever. However, it sounds like for, you know, anchorites and anchoresses, there were still windows, there's still sort of chat with the outside world through the window every day. Whereas the sort of living death you just described there is much more absolute and of course not voluntary. Yes. And I think that's crucial. So I think for spiritual reasons, one might seek out a kind of death and resurrection. And even the rationale of putting people in solitary confinement in the early penitentiary system was to force them into a kind of death of the criminal soul and a rebirth of a new citizen, a redeemed soul. But you can't force a person to undergo redemption. And so I think even though some religious practices might use some of the same techniques of isolation and withdrawal from the world and even understand what they're undergoing as a kind of death. The meaning of that death is so different from the meaning of a death that is forced upon you with the expectation that you will sort of reboot as a new and improved person. Yeah, as you say, very different. And 
kind of linked to this, I think, when you've talked about solitary confinement before, you said that it can tell us something really important about the human condition. So if I understand correctly, the idea being that we're all fundamentally relational, so relationships with other people are what makes us human. And so solitary confinement, by sort of stripping away, as you describe, those human relationships and connections to the outside world, can actually undermine our sense of self or even humanity. Is that is that right? Yes, yes, exactly. And so my sort of philosophical ground for thinking about this relationality of personhood comes from French and German philosophy, specifically the tradition of phenomenology, for which uh, a person is not simply an isolated individual and consciousness is not sort of a separable capacity for awareness that is that operates separately from the world, but rather consciousness is consciousness of other people, of the context you find yourself in. And so if consciousness is relational, then our sense of reality and even our sense of ourselves is deeply indebted to the way we apprehend other people and the way we apprehend them perceiving us. And so if we come back to the contrast between the experience of extreme isolation in prison and the voluntary isolation for ascetic spiritual reasons in, say, uh, a retreat or a monastery, then we can see also that there's a kind of relationship that the ascetic is seeking out, that they believe that if they strip away distractions, then they can deepen their relationship with God or with being, but that is still relational. And I think that the forced isolation of solitary confinement without this surrounding fabric of a tradition and an understanding, a hermeneutic for interpreting what one is going through that religious traditions offer the person who is voluntarily seeking penitence. It just leaves people cast adrift and unhinged from the world. Yes. And again, as you say, I mean, from my own experience of researching sort of religious voluntary solitude, you're sort of the idea is you're running towards something, a conversation with God and deepening towards God. But as you say, with solitary confinement, you're working on it's being cast adrift. Do you think that sort of stripping of connections partly explains why a lot of people in solitary confinement report having hallucinations? Yes, I think so. At least this is how I have sort of moved between prisoners' testimonies and some insights of phenomenological philosophers to try to understand what is happening when someone who is subjected to extreme isolation begins to have difficulty perceiving objects in a stable way and begins seeing things that aren't there or hearing things that aren't there or just being unable to distinguish between something that really happened and something that happened only in their own mind or imagination. And so right from the beginning of the early penitentiary system, we hear reports of people perceiving someone else who's in their cell with them, a shadowy figure, or having thoughts that they can't get out of their mind and hearing voices. And this continues up to the present day. 
And I, I believe that we can understand this phenomenon as a kind of compensation for the extreme lack of stimulus and feedback and support and interaction that we would normally get in a world shared with others. Yeah, and speaking of the present day, you've talked about there being three waves of solitary confinement, specifically in the United States. And just to give us some kind of historical context here, could you give us a bit of an overview about those three waves and what they are? Sure. So the first wave is what I've been calling the early penitentiary system. And this was a punitive institution grounded on religious and specifically Christian principles that you could force someone to do penance and to become penitent by putting them in a an extremely isolated space where the world and its corrupting influences melt away and the person is forced to reorient their soul towards even literally through <clears throat> the opening in the top of their cell to reorient their soul towards God and to reemerge not only a better Christian, but also a better citizen, a better worker, and so on. So we have all kinds of religious and economic and political aspirations bundled into this early penitentiary system. And the second wave emerges in during the Cold War. So in the early penitentiary system, right away, wardens noticed what what they called in the language of the day dementia, monomania, basically mental illness in the prisoners who had been isolated for long periods of time in this sensory deprivation as well as social deprivation. And the practice waned somewhat. There were a few lawsuits in the United States that questioned the constitutionality of solitary confinement, but did not condemn it, absolutely. But it was in the mid-20th century when the U.S. was fighting in Korea and eventually in Vietnam, and they got wind of these techniques that allegedly China was using to brainwash prisoners of war. And they funded massive projects with military and Department of Defense funding to figure out how you could, with sort of more contemporary psychiatric behavior modification practices, break someone down and rebuild them differently. And so the the ethos is more or less the same. You want to take someone that you don't like the way they are behaving, break them down or bring them to the point of death, and then reboot them or resurrect them. But the framing logic that makes this intelligible is not religious, but rather scientific and psychiatric in this second wave. And many political prisoners, many activists and revolutionary fighters in the Black Liberation Army, in Puerto Rican resistance movements, in the American Indian movement, were targeted for this kind of behavior modification. So in the 1970s, there was a series of lawsuits, prisoners' rights lawsuits that were successful in stopping many of these programs. But behavior modification continues in contemporary prisons. Uh, the sort of punishment and reward system is the bread and butter of, of prisons and jails in the U.S. and beyond. 
But where we see, I think, a distinctly third wave of solitary confinement emerging in the U.S. is with the rise of the supermax prison or the warehouse prison. And here, I would argue that behavior modification is no longer the aim. Rather, the aim is incapacitation and the management of a population that may be marked as dangerous. They may be um, labeled as gang members or as uh, um, disruptive to the order of the institution. And um, the, the practice is not that much different. It's still putting someone in a box and leaving them there for years, even decades. But the rationale and the ethos has changed. It is more like putting someone on ice and trying to reduce their destructiveness rather than changing their behavior and modifying them into a different kind of person. I see. And then so now we're in this third wave and... um the figure that I found for the approximate number of incarcerated men, women and children held in solitary confinement in the States was 80,000. That figure seems absolutely astonishing to me. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so difficult to actually get a very accurate count of the number of people in solitary because there is no clearinghouse for this information. Not all prisons, jails and detention centers are required to keep record of how many people are in solitary and for how long. But this was the figure that emerged in a series of Senate hearings a few years ago on solitary confinement. And we have to remember that the U.S. is also the world's largest incarcerator. So 2.4 million people are behind bars in the United States. And a disproportionate number of those prisoners in solitary confinement, but also I think generally, are African-American um, and you've linked that with a deeper history of slavery in the United States, really revealingly. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So um, if we look at the history of the early penitentiary system, this emerged in the northern United States, the Northeast, so Pennsylvania and New York. But as this penitentiary system which was targeting the individual and trying to redeem this individual. As this system was emerging in the South, plantation slavery continued, even intensified in the early 1800s, the early 19th century. And the techniques of trying to single out an individual and change their soul were not, by and large, applied to African-American slaves or people of other races in Southern prisons. It was only when the 13th Amendment abolished slavery and indentured servitude, except for those who are duly convicted of a crime. So that is the formulation of the 13th Amendment that only partially abolishes slavery, that we began to see the rise of prisons in the U.S. South in former slave states and some of these prisons were literally built on top of former plantations. So they basically just changed the name from Angola Plantation to Angola Prison, which is now still running as Louisiana State Penitentiary. So if we look at the early penitentiary system, then I think that 
the ideal or imagined target of this kind of redemptive but coercive intervention was a white man, someone who was free enough and who was presumed to have a soul that was capable of redemption. But if we move to the second wave of solitary confinement and look at the way that Black, Latino, and Latina, and Indigenous resistance movement builders were targeted for behavior modification, then we can also see how many of the techniques in the third wave, the incapacitation of people, the management of a population, derive not so much from the early penitentiary system and more from the ethos of extreme control and domination that structures the Southern prison system. So the U.S. prison system isn't just one homogeneous thing. There are local, regional histories that I think are really important to take into account to see those links between slavery and mass incarceration or the hyper-incarceration of Black people and other racialized people in the U.S. Shokafei, you have yourself been a prisoner in solitary confinement and we're very grateful to have you to share your experiences with us today. Um, For you, uh, Lisa mentioned a little bit ago political prisoners and you yourself were a political prisoner in prison for eight years overall and you spent two of those years in solitary confinement. Um, Can I ask you to give us some background to this? Sure. Hi, Heta. Hi. I was 18 years old when I got arrested in Iran as a political prisoner, and I was kept in prison for eight years. I was in different jails and prisons and different settings, and that two years of the, just roughly saying two years of solitary confinement was just a little bit here, a little bit there, just different, uh, different times at different settings of solitary confinements. As I was listening to Lisa's, uh, the earlier part, talk on the living death and the the description of the early penitentiary cells, that there were no windows and only the window on top, and prisoners described that as being living death, it reminded me actually to one of those solitary confinement settings I was in. It was a kind of not a cell, but just a cubicle. I was forced there to uh, to sit in that cubicle, blindfolded and not being able to move, to lie down during the day or stand up or move or do anything. It was it was when I was sitting there in that. It's just uh, the resemblance of that living death that uh, Lisa was talking about. Yeah, sounds very similar. Is as if being chained, but invisible chain, because we couldn't move. The guards were all the time, 24 hours, uh, just uh, patrolling the area. And so you could not move. If you had you moved, you would get punished and beaten up. And so it was invisible chain. And then I was thinking, hmm, these cubicles, this just beside me, two walls of erected walls of a piece of... Uh, plywood, but as if there is one on top of me too, because I can't raise my head, I can't stand. It's like really is like being in a box, in a in a in a coffin. And interestingly enough, it was the warden himself that invented this spaces. 
called it uh, graves. Sometimes he called it his factory. And the factory was because he saw it that he gets the prisoners there and it's like a factory to disassemble them and then reassemble a converted person or somebody who would turn towards them or accept them, the resistant prisoners, turning them into collaborators. So it was a factory for him to create collaborators. And at the same time, it was a grave that we could not get out of it. I mean, that's a very sort of chilling description. And as you say, even without kind of with a blindfold on and without any light from above, very much, you know, you can see why coffin or grave are terms used. Um my next question that you sort of partially answered, I think, already, I was going to ask you what you thought the purpose to the minds of your sort of of the prison guards or the people um, sort of forcing you into the situation, what they were trying to do through solitary confinement. Lisa's mentioned rebuilding and you've alluded to that as well, sort of unbuilding someone in order to turn them towards something else. What do you think the purpose was of what sounds to me just like torture? Uh, I don't find a purpose or one purpose as a the purpose. There are lots of purposes involved when dealing with prisoners. Uh, sometimes it was for breaking a rule and uh, putting you as a punishment into a solitary confinement. Or sometimes it was just to get information. You know, what was always at the bottom of all of these different type of solitary confinement, like the one that I, the graves I was talking about, is always it was the institutions dealing with the prisoners who were not completely in their control. So you are a prisoner because you are a dissident or somebody who does not abide to the rules of the authority. So solitary confinement was one way of... Uh, of breaking the the character, breaking the person, forcing changes that they wanted or the conversion they wanted to become subservient. Either you would accept, ideologically accept them, but even if not ideologically um, turning into the Iranian, uh, you know, ideological, the Islamic political paradigm, just by accepting your that you are subservient and be able and accepting to help them they need a prisoner to turn against the prisoners against themselves so solitary confinement it's it was something to do that i think but it's not a it's not successful i mean i'm glad that to say that it's not always successful to what they wanted people people resist individually or collectively. Yes, absolutely. I think it's really important to highlight that, you know, whatever the purpose of solitary confinement might be, it doesn't always work. And I'm sure many people have said this to you before, but listening to you describe your experiences, I thought, I don't know how anybody could cope. But, you know, here you are talking to us today. What were your strategies for survival resistance? As Lisa was talking about before, what does solitary confinement do? It breaks relations. Uh, not only to other humans, but other to other aspects of life or existence of the world. All of this uh, being reduced. So one way is actually to keep 
those relations alive. I remember uh, myself that when being locked in into a cell, uh, just standing in the middle of the cell by myself, I, I looked around and looked at the walls, and I looked at the walls, seeing the walls, having encountered so many other people before me. It's a space that people, other people like me have been here. And just by imagining that, that other people have lived there, walked that little space, five feet by five feet, by uh, five steps or by three steps space, and I'm walking there, I, I created a bonding with the people who were there before. I sought their traces on the walls any scratch, any writings, anything else. Finding space for relating, for relations through your past, through my memories, through uh, sensing the ground under me, actually, it extends beyond my walls. It extended into the other side of the walls that somebody else was standing on it. It extended to the other side and other side to the to the words that other people, there were hundreds of prisoners were standing on it. So I could extend that ground into my home and having feeling, sensing and relating to my parents, my one-year-old son walking on that ground. It's that active and deliberate, it comes as a need, but then it becomes active and deliberate ability to keep that connection with the rest of the world alive. And I suppose one thing, you know, people often think about with solitary confinement is sort of these long periods of nothingness. And did you find that these kinds of active, deliberate thoughts were what filled up those sort of long, long stretches of time of sort of nothing but being in that situation. Yes, and you know what? It always bothers me when I watch a movie and they try to show solitary confinement and it's as if nothing. You're just sitting there completely desperate and the only sense or emotion they can show is anger or uh, an out-of-control anger or nothing. As, as it, But it's not right because you live there. And people who haven't been there, they can't even imagine or probably they can't sense it that, yes, there is a whole life is happening there in that space. It's, uh, it looks from the outsider. It's nothing. They only see it's an empty cell with one person walking there or just sitting there. But there is a world. We have our own world. That's the thing. They try to take our, our world away. Solitary confinement, sensory deprivation, is an attempt to remove a person from the existence, from the world. But we have a past. We have an imagination for a future. We had a world. That world is within us except through the extreme sensory deprivation that they can actually break down the, uh, the ability to remember and uh, completely unsettle the inside of a person. But even through this relative deprivations, 
the reduced world, we have a world inside ourselves that we carry it within ours. And that's, that's the place that gives you an anchor to relate, to live and survive the present, that present of empty present. So what is your ethical value? What is your relations to the others? There is still there within you. What they do, they try to remove all the others and only put you in a relations with the authority. So the authority, the guards, they become the only people and, and they want to really reduce your relationship to the world, to that kind of a relationship, you and your torturers. My way of surviving it is not allowing that and keep bringing, keep digging out something that is important for me. The meaning of life and the meaning of being a human being or the meaning of having all, all the other things that it was for me was a value or for a other person it has been a value, a source of energy. It could have been just hatred some, for somebody or it can be a love and care. Different things. But not allowing that reduction, that replacement of every relationship with the relationship with you, with the torturer happen. Could I respond to Shakufe? Uh, yeah, do, does that sort of resonate with what you've heard from other prisoners? or, or what, uh, you know? Absolutely. There's so much that is so powerful in what Shakufe has just said. And this effort to reduce a person's relationships only to the dominant authority is also exactly the way that slavery historian Orlando Patterson describes what he sees as the function at the heart of slavery, which is not forced labor for no compensation, but rather natal alienation and social death. And so for Patterson, natal alienation is exactly that, a, an attempt that fails, but an attempt a systematic attempt to strip away the slaves' relation, meaningful relationships to everyone else, to their kin. And so they're stolen from Africa. They're separated from other people who speak their language. Their own children are separated from them. And the effort is to force this person into one sole relation, and that is to the slave owner. So the goal of that natal alienation is a kind of social death where you are dead to all of your other social relations and you are dead in the sense of being utterly um, stripped of social meaning and mattering. But what Shokufe was saying earlier about the way that these walls that are constructed to separate people and to isolate them and to break them down and to strip away their relations to a world can also be refigured through memory and imagination into a kind of threshold that, that maintains and holds connection to others, whether it's the traces of others who have also inhabited that space or a threshold to the prisoner in the next cell. And many people, even in the, in the supermax prison, report communicating with people in other cells by by taking that infrastructure of social death and reclaiming and refiguring these walls and these vents and even the plumbing system, the toilets and sinks, 
as passages to others, whether through speaking, through vents, through knocking on walls, even removing the water from toilets and using them as a kind of pipeline to communicate. And so I think even in situations of extreme systematic natal alienation, people, many people manage to hold on to their sense of a world. And I think that this connects to what we were talking about earlier um, and the contrast between monastic practices of extreme isolation and extreme isolation as punishment in prison, that this distinction is not only that um, one is voluntary, one is involuntary, but that one is supported by a whole world of meaning and one enters into possibilities for meaningful existence through a monastic practice. But the prison is designed to evacuate meaning, to destroy meaning, and even to turn your own capacity to create meaning against yourself by fostering this kind of paranoia. Paranoia is a is rooted in the capacity to make connections, to to try to figure out your world. But if you're deprived of the kind of community that could help you to make sense of what is real and what is not real, your own ability to make connections, to make meaning, can be used as a weapon against you. But you can also reclaim that weapon and and use it to connect to a history of political resistance or a world of... Um, of ethical connection and care. And Shokfe, it sounds like that really resonated with you. Yes, yes, it did. But I, I'd like to just have a side comment, if it's... If, yeah, of if, course. If I may, yes. Lisa, uh, about all of those ways of communication uh, mm-hmm. among the prisoners in the uh, in solitary cells, uh, we had all those things too. Mm-hmm. I think I identify myself with the prisoners who are in the prison. I always had these reservations of talking about our ways yeah. of communication, is our, our secret ways of communications. Mm-hmm. So whenever I hear somebody <laughs> talks about them, I say, oh, don't uh-huh. give them away. Don't right. give them away. <laughs> But I know it's out there, but I had this, it, yeah. it brought that into myself that, oops, yes, but don't right. say it now. Right, right. <laughs> That's an important reminder. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, it's just that it reminds me how we relate to the life in prison differently. I am also studying it, researching it, how is what happens, how it happens. But I, part of me also is there, and I know that uh, people are, are still there. It's, it's not something that is finished, and we're just discussing something that is finished, and we uh, dissect its anatomy. But it is still a living space and some people are trying to find ways of surviving there. And I'm saying this because, like, mm, we had our ways of communication, and they always wanted to find find out and block it. We had our ways of finding materials to read or to write or smuggle things inside the cells. And, uh, and it was important for us, for them not to know how we smuggle things. 
Yeah, an important reminder, as you say, that, you know, you, you both work on this. Shock for you've experienced it. And as you say, you research and write on it. And we're sort of having a kind of academic discussion. But this is something that people are still experiencing every day. And I sort of feel like people listening, Shock will be sort of wondering how you managed to get out. And you did have quite an extraordinary escape, actually. Um, so I wondered if you could tell us about that. Yes, my sentence was five years but the condition for my release was to give a public interview and in that interview announce my allegiance to the regime and renouncement of myself and all of those things that you see in show trials uh, of uh, ideological uh, prison system regimes due to their prisoners, political prisoners. So I did not accept that. And they kept me uh, in prison just indefinitely till the time that I would accept that conditions. Three years after I was in prison for eight years, the whole political situation changed. The Iran-Iraq war was finished in 1988. They massacred thousands of the prisoners in the prison. And uh, I was one of the lucky ones for different reasons, with among a few hundred others who stayed alive. And by 1990, it was the day contacted our, the, us, the remaining resistant prisoners. They contacted our parents and asked them to sign papers saying that if they release us temporarily, uh, our parents would convince us to do the interview, doing something like that. So it was another layers of pressure. At that time, uh, they uh, let me out in 1990 uh, under that temporary release to the care of my parents for one week. And what I did it was after a week, my parents called the authority and asked them and told them they haven't succeeded yet, so they they re, what is that, renewed the release for one week. So what I did, it was like that, convince my parents not to contact the authority and wait for the authority to come and arrest me again. And interestingly enough, they didn't. They didn't come to co arrest me, but I was under the control and I couldn't do anything. So what I did, I, uh, meanwhile... I found a smuggler that I could escape the country through the walking through the borders to uh, Turkey. And that's what I did with my with my nine year old son. It's very brave. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's sort of obviously it goes without saying really incredible suffering that we've covered in this conversation. Um, but also, I think stories of remarkable creative strategies that prisoners like yourself, Shokafe, have found to make something of their experience, often without any resources or very little resources. Um, I'm thinking of things, stories that I've sort of been reading about prepping for this interview, like prisoners painting with their hair and all these ways of writing and communicating the ingenuity and spirit in the face of, of torture and to make a sort of social world despite everything being against creating that world. I wondered if, uh, a question for both of you, if either of you have any sort of 
particular moments or examples in your work that you've come across that are particularly inspiring? Favorite is hard to say. There were lots of things. (laughs) Yes. We would like uh, dig um, in a time that they had for fresher, dig out the piece of stone from the cement or from any corner of any wall, any things that you could find. And then uh, working on that piece of stone, beautiful artifacts, prisoners created just uh, by um, carving on the stones, turning a coin into rings and we would undo, unravel our our uh, socks and things just to create something out of it, something or to, something beautiful. You know, creating beauty was illegal in my prison, uh, and it, all of this had to happen secretly. And secretly, we had to we would smuggle them out. All of these creating beauty were were resistance and were. They gave us all uh, power, empowering, um, and connection with life. Um, we uh, we have our own Morse codes, and uh, Morse codes for communication between cells, uh, or ways of communication between the graves, uh, sending signals by playing with light, with uh, with sound, with uh, touch. Where we only could have, uh, for example, in the graves, I could have a little bit of a touch, feeling the touch of somebody on the in the other side of my my wall. There was a gap that she could touch my toe, and by that touching the toe, I could we could uh, have uh, through Morse code communications. So that's why I'm saying it's it's a world that you could find different ways of relating to. Other beings. Uh, one of my friends in in the graves was a mosquito. So, the beauty of seeing the mosquito, for example, sucking my blood and its belly gets red, I, mm-hmm. it was fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 really inspirational to hear about sort of the creation of beauty. You know, in what sounds like impossible conditions. It's. Um, yeah, it's really inspiring. Lisa, have you come across any yeah. examples of this sort of thing that have stayed with you? Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, Donnie Johnson, who created paintbrushes with his own hair and used the pigment from sweets like M&Ms and Skittles to, to do incredible modernist paintings of his emotions. Um, for him, this practice was a kind of self-investigation, an expression and a a questioning of his emotional life. And other prisoners that I've met or whose memoirs I've read include one prisoner who accidentally discovered what he could do with instant coffee as a pigment because he wasn't allowed any paint in his cell. And he was writing a letter to his son and then spilled his instant coffee on the letter and was so frustrated with himself that he had ruined this letter, but then started to see, ah, if I just push around this liquid and and let it dry, I can actually make faces and see the the face of my son in in the design that I create with my fingers and this instant coffee. Yeah, I'd like to say something here. Of add to this, 
This is amazing, uh, Donnie Johnson's and uh, mm-hmm. the story that you said, because one of my prison mates, she also, when she was in the solitary confinement, she made uh, out of her hair, her own hair, she created her own uh, paintbrush. Oh, wow. And, and, and when you said, when I read that mm-hmm. article uh, you wrote, and I read that, I said, oh, my God. This is wow. different part of the world, different, but it's the same thing. I mean, yeah. you are and in, in the creative mind and the need, the desire that exists. Different people come up with the same thing. So she made a paintbrush from her hair and she used tea. Wow. <laughs> amazing wow. tea. Yes. In the cell, and she drew she drew faces of wow. uh, of her friends who were executed, and wow. by from her memory and from her mind, and and actually she smuggled them out. That was <laughs> beautiful. So that's amazing. Wow. Yeah, amazing. those kind of connections. It's very moving. Shokafe, Lisa, I cannot thank you both enough for sharing your work and your experiences with us today. It's been a genuine pleasure talking to both of you. And um, I feel inspired and moved um, afterwards. Thank you both so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude Project generously supported by the Wellcome Trust and hosted by Queen Mary, University of London. It was presented by me, Hetta Howes, and produced by Natalie Steed. There are eight episodes in total, exploring the places and experiences of solitude across the centuries. To find them, search for Solitude's Queen Mary. And visit our website, where you can also find a blog about the artwork of the prisoner Donnie Johnson, who was mentioned in this episode.